This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Tom Slater. He's the head of the U.S. equities team at UK firm Bailey Gifford, headquartered in Edinburgh. Uh, the firm has been around since 1908. They manage, pick a number, almost $300 billion in assets. They've had explosive growth. And they are not your typical growth manager. They run concentrated portfolios. He referred to one of the funds they run as growth at an unreasonable price, but it's worked out really well. That fund is up 112%, almost 100% more than the S&P 500. And really, this conversation is very much along the lines of what happens when you rethink the investment process over long, long periods of time and make well-thought-out, intelligent adjustments to how you go about selecting companies, constructing portfolios, making sell decisions, which Tom points out is where so many investors go awry. Uh, You know, your downside in any one stock is limited pretty much to 100%, but your upside is far, far greater. And as he points out, 4% or so of the total U.S. equity stocks are what has driven all of the gains over the past century. And so it becomes very important not to sell a stock that has potential to keep growing. And if you look at their portfolio, grow substantially. They own things like Tesla and Netflix and Alphabet, etc., This was really a fascinating conversation. If you are at all interested in growth investing, if you want to know why having a large active share and not being a closet indexer is important as an active manager, well, this is going to be the interview for you. So with no further ado, my conversation with Tom Slater of Bailey Giffords. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Tom Slater. He is the head of the U.S. equities team for Bailey Gifford, where he has been a partner since 2012. He runs the long-term global growth portfolios, which are focused on growth companies that are both listed and private. Tom Slater, welcome to Bloomberg. Hi, Barry. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start a little bit with your background. How did you find your way into the investment management business. I know you have uh, an experience in computer science and mathematics. Yeah, that was that was my background. I, I studied maths and computer science at university. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking probably about, about doing something in, in academia. It was quite an interesting uh, and exciting time in, in the computer science world, um, 96 to, to 2000 when I was at, was at university. But I had a very good friend um, that that I that I studied maths with, and and she went and and worked in, um, in the city of London um, during our, our final summer at university. Um, she she came back. Uh, Franz Franz Anderson, her name was. She came she came back and uh, she said to me that this this is the this is the direction we want to be be looking at. Um, and that's what, that was really the first time I encountered the world of, of investment management. Um, probably the, the the summer of 1999. Really, that that was a heck of a time uh, in terms of the end of that last big uh, stock cycle. Was that your formative experience, the dot com boom and bust? Um, yes, it, in in a lot of ways, it was. I started 
working at Bailey Gifford in in September of 2000. So just after the the peak of the of the boom, and and then for the for the next three years of the, the first three years of my career, watch markets decline substantially. I think there's a slight danger in calling it formative. In that, of course, there had been a lot of speculative excess in that period. But some some amazing things have come out of it um, as well. Subsequently, um, we've had a lot of time for the work of of Carlotta Perez at Sussex University in this in this regard, and and the link between um, financial mania and and subsequent technological innovation. Hmm. Quite interesting. So let's switch gears. You're an active manager, and you are both selecting stocks and determining how long to hold them. And I want to uh, ask you about a quote of yours that I read where you you had written, quote, the active management industry has done a poor job of making the case for its own existence. Discuss that. I think it's a really interesting area, Barry. The the start of it was was looking at this polarization between active management and passive management and thinking through, well, what is the, what what are we really trying to say about, about the case here? And it struck me that um, both both passive and active um, had become terms that had become quite corrupted. So, in the in the case of the active management industry, you you see so many funds that label themselves as active that charge fees for active management, but have huge overlap with the index or, or low active share, as it's known. And so what those companies are really focused on is business risk and not producing an outcome that diverges too much from the market. Because, of course, diverging too much from the market is, is what leads you to your, your clients to fire you. And so I think when you hear the sort of howls from the active management industry about losing um, assets to passive management, in some ways, the industry has, has been the architect of, of its own demise by providing sufficient value to savers. And that leads to these sort of remarkable results from the, the likes of Kramers and Petagisto that show the, there being a, a correlation between active share and performance. So you have this remarkable idea that you don't even need to know what bets your fund manager is taking simply that the fact they are taking bets um, is, is likely to, to lead to a better outcome um, just because the, the, the aggregate statistics are dragged down by those who aren't actually offering a genuine active experience. At, at the same time, though, you, 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 the, the passive management industry, I think, has been guilty of, of coming up with so many indices um, against which to manage assets passively that you, you, you can't help but conclude it is little more than, a, than an asset gathering exercise. You know, there are more indices than, than there are stocks to invest in, um, which, was, which was a threshold that was crossed two or three years ago. And so I think both, both sides of, of, of this argument have become quite polarized. They've become at times quite disingenuous. And that's what's, what's taken Bailey Gifford towards this idea of, of categorizing ourselves as actual investors by which we mean um, that we aim to be long-term, supportive, engaged shareholders in companies, which is, you know, which is, is nothing to do with taking positions relative to an index. So let's talk about one of the funds you're affiliated with, the U.S. Equity Growth Fund. 
it's up over 112% year to date. I have to assume that has a substantial active share, given the S&P 500 is up only 15% year to date. Yes. We do not look at the index when we construct portfolios. I think um, indices are a, a, a good way to evaluate the performance of a fund manager, so long as you do it over a time scale which, which is commensurate with the way that, in which the fund is managed. But I, but I think it's an extremely dangerous way to start constructing a portfolio. So our, our portfolios are, are constructed simply of the stocks that, that we think offer the most um, exciting possibilities, the greatest chance of, of being exceptional companies, um, by which we mean addressing large opportunities, having some form of sustainable edge and something special about the culture. And, and the way in which they go about the task. So I would discourage people from looking at the one-year numbers because I think one-year numbers are, are filled with noise and actually extending the time frame, looking at three years, looking at five years, is, is much more likely to give um, investors evidence or otherwise of, of the skill of the manager. So you use a benchmark that is the S&P 500 plus 1.5%. I have to ask where that benchmark came from. If you weren't British, I would accuse you of showing off. <laughs> I think that um, is actually a, an artifact of, of method regulation that we have to um, have to declare our performance objective, not just the benchmark, but the performance objective for the fund. Um, I think if I was to link that to a characteristic of, of Bailey Gifford, we have an extremely strong compliance culture. Um, you know, you, if, if you go way back in time, you know, um, after, after the Maxwell scandal and, and the, the raid on the, the, the pension fund, you know, who is that pension fund given to to manage? It was Bailey Gifford. Um, because the firm has a reputation of, of, of being um, white and white when it comes to all of, all of these compliance um, and, and management traits, and that's that's really a function of the fact that the firm is an unlimited liability partnership, which I think is a is a very rare structure these days. If you look at the fund management industry, but the the, the forty odd partners who work directly in the firm are, are personally liable for the, for the, for the firm's liabilities. And so, you know, when it comes to things like method uh, regulations, we we tend to follow the absolute letter of the law and, and declare our performance relative to the, the one and a half percent above the benchmark, you know, perhaps a, a slightly more enthusiastic way than, than uh, many of our peers might. Quite fascinating. So, Tom, let me ask you, how do you think about both assets under management and how quickly the firm is growing when you're out looking at, at companies or stocks to buy? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, the, the firm was actually founded in, in 1908. So if you look at the full sweep of its existence, the, the growth hasn't been that explosive. But certainly our assets under management um, have, have grown um, reasonably sharply of late. But if you actually look at the flows of our clients, um, there's, there's significant flows both in and out. And the net of those two, two numbers is just about zero. Um, so the growth in assets has been much more to do with um, investment performance um, alpha generated for our clients than it has from, from an exercise around asset gathering. And the reason for those two-way flows is a mixture of both the, the, the 
um, our, our core base of pension fund clients gradually reducing their exposure to equities over time, and then also clients um, um, rebalancing their, their portfolios. But in terms of, of how I would think about it, if you if you ask me the question today, what is Bailey Gifford's uh, assets under management? I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the answer. It's a statistic that at one stage in our life it used to be available on our internet, but we purposefully removed it. And, and the reason we did so is that our objective is not to grow assets under management in and of itself. Um, what we believe is that if we do a good job from an investment standpoint for our clients, if we provide a, a really high level of service, that the, the assets under management figure will take care of itself. Um, one of the, the directors of, of the investment trust that, that I manage, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, um, wrote a book called Obliquity and talking about how those firms that had the greatest success often did that because they pursued a, a, a different goal around delivering an, an excellent product or service for their customers. And the success followed from that. They didn't target those financial objectives. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Well, well, let's stick with the concept of both active share and active management. You know, it's been, the decade has really been defined as the rise of passive and indexing. And when we see firms like Vanguard at, at $6 trillion or BlackRock at $8 trillion, they, they've become the 800-pound gorillas. What should investors know about active strategies? What types of strategies can work beyond simple passive indexing? Well, I think passive indexing can be a great product for end savers. I, I think um, Vanguard does a fabulous job of producing a really great value for money product for savers um, and doing it with, with real integrity. They also have a, a very significant active management business. And again, they, they bring that, that high-quality attitude towards the way they approach the task. I think that in an era where there is so much uh, change going on, where there are companies um, using new business models, often underpinned by technology, to bring um, transformational change in industries that have, have really historically seen very little progress, um, that I, it, it, it creates pockets of growth, creation of value, that if you can tap into as an active manager, can be hugely valuable to your underlying clients. Um, now, it's, it, it's, it's important that you have clarity around you know, philosophy and, and process, what you're actually trying to do. And it's, it's centrally important that your fees are reasonable and don't detract from that underlying experience of the end investor. But I think subject to, to those qualifications, you know, active management has, has a huge amount to offer, uh, offer savers. So let's talk a little bit about active management. This era is known, uh, especially the past couple of years, for the high valuations we've seen for, for multiple growth companies. How should investors think about valuations? The best stocks never look cheap, but names that have looked historically expensive have done exceedingly well this year. One, one of the ways we would characterize our approach to investment would be the idea of growth at an unreasonable price. And 
what what um, what I mean when I say that is that um, we're looking for companies that address really big opportunities and where that opportunity is often dynamic, it's often changing. And you have a hypothesis about why this company might be the one to, to benefit from that change. But you know, we, we don't know. But if, if the opportunity is big enough, if the, if the edge of the company is great enough, if there's something special about the way it goes about that task, then it can generate um, a huge amount of value. So if you look at I know, a company like Alphabet or, or Amazon, you know, these, these companies have been vastly underestimated for most of their life cycle. Hmm. Um, I think it was um, Michael Moritz at Sequoia who said, why do we persistently uh, underestimate just how great a great company can be? Um, and so, you know, we, we don't really look at multiples of near-term earnings or near-term sales. We look at you know, what might this company achieve and you know, where could it be five years from now? And, and I think over that time, you can only think probabilistically. There isn't an answer to that question. But if you, if you can identify one of those small number of companies that are the big winners in markets, um, then they can justify uh, paying what, what may appear to be optically um, high short-term multiples because some of the growth opportunities that are bound today are so open-ended. And you see a lot of winner-takes-all or winner-takes-most economics. So I'm looking at the Bailey Gifford U.S. Equity Growth Fund. The top 10 holdings are fairly concentrated. It's about 55% of the portfolio with a lot of names that I think a lot of people would recognize. Tesla, Amazon, Shopify, Wayfair, Netflix, Alphabet, MasterCard. I have to ask about Chegg and Trade Desk, two companies I am not all that familiar with. Yeah. If you look at those two companies, Chegg is um, an education platform. I think there are, there are a lot of challenges faced by the education system. And what um, Chegg has done is, is through a direct-to-consumer model based uh, around a questions and answers product, um, it is... It is helping students to get um, um, measurably better outcomes in, in, in their examinations. But around that and, and on top of that, it can build um, all sorts of products associated with student access. And, and in an environment where college education is, is so expensive and inflation is so high, actually providing a cost-effective solution that demonstrates value for money for students is, is something that I, I think has a, a huge potential runway. Um, you, 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 you talked a little bit about this year and the unusual traits of this year. You know, I, I think what this year has shone a spotlight on is um, the, the challenges the education sector has faced in embracing digital tools, digital methods of delivery. You know, in the fund management industry, you know, here I am working from home using a whole array of cloud-based services. It's, it's it probably made me more productive, not less productive. But if I look at my children and their educational experience, you know, as these um, um, stay-at-home orders have, have come through, you know, it's really shone a spotlight on, on you know, how slow the education sector has been to embrace some of these tools. Now, Chegg is a company that um, it's run by its um, founder. They have significant amount of, of equity tied up in 
of, of, of their own wealth tied up in the equity of the business. It's run with a very long time horizon, exactly the type of characteristics that we're, we're looking for in the, in the long-term growth businesses that we invest in. Huh. I would say, um, you know, if you, when, you, when you, talk to, you talked a bit about some of those um, top holdings, and you know, if, if I was to pull out a difference perhaps in the way we approach the task um, versus, versus some of our peers, um, it would be in the in the longevity of the holdings. So, you know, um, Amazon um, we we bought in 2005. So it, the, the holding period thus far has been 15 years. And you know, I, I mean, Tesla 2013. It's been seven years. So it's the time horizon, not not the recent growth, that I think is the is a really important um, and defining characteristic. Quite interesting. So, Tom, let's talk a little bit about passive. You, you've talked about why active doesn't do such a good job of explaining their own existence, kind of left the field all alone to passive. But I want to come back uh, to another statement you made, quote, the average active manager will underperform the market. Unfortunately, this statement is mathematically inevitable. Isn't that essentially the underlying argument in favor of passive? Yeah, I mean, I guess what what I was, I was getting at is, that, you know, if if you if you say the the market is is made up of active and passive approaches to investment, then after fees, you are you guaranteed to see those approaches underperform whatever the benchmark is, and since the fees on active management are higher. Um, and fees on passive management, you'd expect that that in some they ought to, as a group, underperform uh, underperform by a greater amount. But I think you you know you you have to come back to some of the challenges around w- what is active management, and there are some some rules of of um, I'm not not even rules of thumb, but there are some some interesting academic results in this area. You know, one we've touched on is that. Simply having a higher active share correlates positively with performance outcomes. But I think in subsequent academic results have shown that time horizon is also important in this. And as, as you extend the time horizon, the academic evidence is, is also supportive of, of better outcomes for, um, for active management. So I don't, anyway, I, I, I don't think the averages um, matter a great deal. It's much more about um, can you can you find an investment manager with a philosophy and process that you believe in? Do they keep their fees to a minimum so that you, as an individual, have to have the best chance of outperforming? Because the fees are the one part that we we do have certainty about. And then it's you know when you when you when you believe you have found a manager that meets those criteria, if little changes, then stick with them um, through inevitable performance cycles. You know, the, the oldest client I, I, I manage money for at Bailey Giffords is Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. We've, we've managed that, that fund for 112 years, you know, through the Great Depression and two world wars. And unfortunately, they, the performance numbers that come out of that are, are not GIPS compliant. But, but over that 112-year period, you know, it is, has been a, a, a phenomenally attractive thing for investors to be invested in an, in an actively managed fund. Quite interesting. For Americans who may not be familiar with what the Scottish Mortgage Trust, Investment Trust is, can you explain a little bit exactly what that entity is? 
I can, yes. It's um, it's a closed-ended investment vehicle um, listed on the London Stock Exchange. It's capitalized at around $25 billion. It's a member of the, the FTSE 100 index. Um, but it's really a, a collective investment vehicle um, that, that, that was raised in, originally in, in, in 1908 in, in the fund structures that invested in that time. But it's an incredibly flexible structure. Um, uh, it has an independent board of directors um, who are who are an extremely valuable source of um, counsel and and advice for us as the managers, who do a great job of, of protecting the interests of of the the tens of thousands of of independent shareholders in the trust. And it's a very flexible structure, being um, being closed ended and a permanent pool of capital, allowing us to invest in both public and and private companies. Um, really on the basis of where we find the most exceptional opportunities um, with, without worrying about a, a company's public or private status. And in a, an environment where you know, many companies um, are able to grow very rapidly with very modest capital requirements, often staying private for longer, it's a structure that allows us to really maintain the opportunity set of investing in, in the world's greatest growth companies. So let's stick with the idea of private Generally speaking, we're seeing companies staying private for longer, as you mentioned. They're, they're not IPOing as often. And there's clearly no passive comparable sort of fund for pre-public companies. How different is making the stock selection decision about private companies compared to what we see for publicly traded firms? We have to be clear about what we're trying to do here. We're investing in growth companies. And companies that we, we aren't venture capitalists, we're not, we're not going in and, and funding you know, two people in a garage, um, we're, we're, but we are investing in companies that have chosen to stay private, possibly because you know, in, in today's world where your addressable market is the three billion people globally that have a smartphone, where you, you, you can address that market without investing in significant capital. You know, you can pay 5% of revenue to Amazon Web Services, you know, pay 30% to an app store. And then suddenly, you know, that, that 3 billion people is an addressable audience. And as a result, you know, with very modest capital sums investors, you can see that the most successful companies really grow to, to phenomenal size very rapidly. And so our observation was that you know, the, these are companies in another era that, that we, you know, we, we, we may well have been in investing in anyway, um, because, because they would have come to, to public markets at a much earlier stage. So I think in, in terms of the decisions about investment, there's, there's very little difference. You know, there are some technical differences around the legal negotiations, around the type of shares you own. But, but I think that's sort of slightly tangential to the, to the core task of, of picking, the, picking the investments. I think the other thing to, 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 to comment on is you know, the costs at which this can be done. You know, the, the ongoing charges of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is, is around 36 basis points, or just over a third of 1%. And we think for our shareholders to get access to some of the world's um, um, most promising private companies within that type of cost structure is, is game-changing. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. So... The equity markets in the U.S. have been dominated by the FANG stocks or the FANUM stocks, if we throw in Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, 
Amazon, Netflix, Google. I guess I guess we could add even another A if we change Google to Alphabet. These are the companies dominating today, but they weren't the dominant companies 20 years ago. Are these going to be the dominant companies 20 years from now? Well, I think the first thing that we ought to be careful of is how we talk about these companies. I try to ban the use of, of the term FANG internally. And the, the reason is that it creates this idea of equivalence, that this is, you know, th- these group, this is a group of companies driven by the same growth drivers, but also affected by the same risk factors. You know, if you, if you go back, I know, 15 years, we, we were all talking about the BRICS, which was, I think, an acronym um, coined by Jim O'Neill, but it, it, the, yep. it, was, it was an emerging markets, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Now, if you, if you actually look at what's happened since that uh, BRIC acronym was coined, um, China has created an economy, uh, a new economy, two times the size of the other three combined. So, so they were really never that alike as, as economies in, in, in the first place. And so you know, we, we, we try to think about these, these companies separately from one another. Amazon remains uh, one of our largest holdings. And you know, I, I, I think there we see a runway to, to a much bigger business as you as you look at some of the different components there, from from the general merchandise business to its its move into grocery and in the retail space to its to its move into new geographies such as India, but also it's it's in it, it, this this sort of um, intangible quality of, of being able to move into areas that that are somewhat adjacent to where they are. But where where it's very hard for people to 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 imagine their progress. So, you know, we, I strongly believe Amazon Web Services is is just about the most important business that exists in the world today. Now, Wall Street's very good at valuing you know today's products, today's markets. It's very bad at, at anticipating you know or, or, or valuing imagination and ambition, and that has been such an important driver of, of value growth at Amazon. So, I, I think these companies, you know, over the past decade. You know, when everybody's been searching for who is the next Alphabet, who is the next Facebook, who is the next Amazon, you know what we've we've seen is actually those companies have reinvented themselves. They've got stronger as they've, they've got bigger. That they've sucked in economic activity from across the internet and and also from the real economy. I think it's you know it's a it's a much more nuanced question for for some of these companies as you when you start out you know trillion dollars of capitalization. So. You know, what excites me is that you you see some of the, um, the the technologies that have driven this transformation in retail, this transformation in media, media over the past twenty years, being applied to areas which have just seen nothing like that pace of change, and I think that creates a whole new raft of opportunities. You know, it, it, in 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 areas from I know from insurance to to real estate to um, um, the automotive industry, and 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 you know, I, I think sort of the, you know, one of the things that's so exciting for a growth investor um, at the current time is just how we're seeing the broadening of of the impact of Moore's law, of ubiquitous mobile communications, of advanced software a- across huge swathes of the economy. Hmm. So let's stick with the concept of AWS and some of their competitors. Obviously. Microsoft is a key competitor. Uh, a recent IPO, Snowflake, 
uh, is a company that went public and, and they seem to be in a similar space and, and they quickly scaled up to like a $100 billion market cap. How do you look at moats that these various companies create? Is Amazon now just a behemoth that can never be um, taken down or will anyone ever manage to penetrate the moats that they've built? I mean, I, I think ever is, is a long time, but you know, <laughs> some of the things we do know about about Amazon's web services business is firstly that the addressable opportunity is very, very large, you know, trillion dollar plus uh, market for, for IT infrastructure. We know it has a, a very strong first mover advantage that it's got to a scale long before others. You know, if you if you listen to Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, talk, you know, he will say he was he was amazed at the at the head start he was able to get in this business. I think right. um, I think few people appreciated um, just just how fantastic the economics of it could be, and I think scale is a self reinforcing advantage here. You know that it it allows you to invest in infrastructure and better service and the, the bigger data sets mean better machine learning, which means better outcomes for companies, which means you attract more companies. So, so I think it is it is you know, in infrastructure it's in a very powerful position. You know I think Microsoft has has been has done very well at um, using its distribution um, into the enterprise space to to really get itself back into the game. And I think you know it remains to be to be seen how how Google is offering under the leadership of Thomas Curian, competes from here because it's obviously a, a company with phenomenal technological prowess. But this shift um, in, in enterprise from on-premise to the cloud is one which I think plays out over the next 10 or 20 years and is, is of enormously large size. So I think the, you know, the capitalizations that you, you mentioned sort of attached to things such as Snowflake reflect the fact that investors are starting to incorporate that just, just the longevity of this shift into their thinking. So we're talking about some pretty gigantic industries and companies, but when we think about growth going forward, all these companies today, they didn't, uh, many of them anyway, didn't really exist 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So that leads me to the question, where are the big opportunities out there that aren't already dominated by these, you know, behemoth firms. Yeah, I think one of the interesting dynamics that we're seeing in the market today is um, around the, the the companies that are providing scale as a service. And what I mean by that is that the, the biggest online players have um, had phenomenal resources at their disposal, which has been very hard to compete with. But if you look at something like a, a Shopify, what that, that company has, has created is a, a platform for merchants um, to compete on a more equal footing with the likes of Amazon and Walmart by providing them with uh, the, the tools to create their online store, the same sort of browsing experience for their customers, the access to a payments gateway, increasingly access to two-day fulfillment. And so they've created that scale themselves. And then as they've got, as as they've um, as they've attracted more and more merchants, they can then negotiate better and better terms with their suppliers and pass that on to the smaller merchants. So they're they're really selling scale to, to those underlying customers. Now Shopify is doing that in the retail area, but if you take a company like Stripe in payments, 
you know, the, the navigating the, the payments infrastructure were, is, a, is a phenomenally challenging thing because there's different regulations, there's different banks in every geography that you go to, different business practices. You know, almost impossible for small businesses to incorporate payments on a global scale into what they're doing. Um, but but what Stripe has done is is navigate that incredibly complex world and then make it extremely simple for um, for individual companies to then incorporate that capability in into their app into into their their website. And you know, I, I could go on with this. You know, companies like Twilio doing exactly the same thing in communications and providing a, a gateway into this these incredibly complex communication networks. So I think there's one, one really interesting angle is is around those this set of companies selling selling scale as a service into into smaller merchants. I think the other angle I I, I would go at it from would be about um, about those companies that can harness this this new world that we live in this this technology led world to 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 use new business models in 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 established industries um so you know insurance is an interesting one you know we we invest in lemonade that i p o recently um you know i think what 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 they've done in in creating a a completely digital experience for their for their customers um, in, in terms of accessing their insurance products, in terms of making claims, um, just is 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 really challenging for for business models that are based on you know mainframe computing and expensive expensive distribution. Um, but I could go on. You know, Redfin in real estate as as another example of that. You know, if you if you can create if you if you can um, tap into a direct relationship with the consumers through your website. If you can have an agent, directly employed agent force, but give them all the, the, the digital tools to make them more effective in their jobs, then I think that gives you a big competitive advantage over, over traditional incumbents. Quite, quite interesting. So I have to ask about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. How has that affected your thought process about the companies you want to have in your portfolio? How much of what you own has really been in the right space to deal with a work-from-home, shelter-in-place pandemic, and what happens to those companies sometime next year once we see widespread distribution of the various vaccines that have been developed? Yeah, this is a a really interesting area, and um, I I think for sure a lot of the companies that, that we own have been beneficiaries of of the circumstances we find ourselves in you know, we own zoom the video communications platform which we, we bought in early 2019 but if you stick with that one for a for a moment and maybe explore some of the issues you know the the, the insight that we had when we, we we participated in the ipo of of zoom was that video communications in the enterprise um was uh, massively underpenetrated. You know, if, if we were having this conversation, you know, a couple of years ago via video conference, Barry, what what I, I think we would have done is that that your IT team and my IT team would have arranged a meeting. They'd have they'd have gone into a, a you know a room that's somewhere in our offices that's only used for video conferencing and and spent about half an hour trying to set up the call and then been on hand when we actually tried to do it in person the next day. Um, but so, so the, the the constraint on much broader use of video conferencing was that it was a dreadful product, 
And as you created a, a much more um, engaging user experience, as you as you made it possible for people to just do video conferencing, you know, that that you would see um, an explosion in the scale of the market, and also a viral selling dynamic. That if 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 I phoned you via Zoom and you had a good experience, you would say, "What's this product? I'm going to use it." And I think you know, that that was that that dynamic was unfolding through 2019. But but in in with the impact of the virus, you know, usage has has exploded. Um, and I think now they talk about maybe 300 million users of this service. Um, I think the last number I saw was that they had 11 million paying customers. So what what happens going forward? Well, you know, if, if the vaccines are as effective as we hope. Then, then I think we'll all be having a lot more in-person meetings, um, you know, because everybody is is fed up of being cooped up at home. You know, they want to get out. So, so the unprecedented level of demand that that we we have today, of course, declines. But then the question is, you know, everybody knows what Zoom is, and I'm not talking about you know people in the in in the IT departments of big enterprises. You know, it's 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 become a verb. Um, you know, millions of Salespeople and marketing people and and people in education un, understand this product now, and so you know, of the billion knowledge workers that are on the planet, you know, how how much of that is addressable for this company that starts with eleven million licenses? And I think those are the the really challenging questions. You know, it's not will demand decline? Of course, it, of course, it will decline as 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 we come out of, of lockdown. And I think if you you know you expand that more broadly, one of the frameworks. Um, that I've I've found really helpful, um, and it's, it's worked done with by one, by one of my colleagues, Dave Butchnowski. He's a, he's a fascinating analyst, but he's he, drawing on a um, an, an idea um, of accumulated accidents. So this idea that um, you know, what were the structures um, um, that were the norm before COVID hit that weren't the sort of local maxima or the perfect way that something should be done, but instead just the product of accumulated accidents over time. Because I think those are the things that are, um, um, are, we're unlikely to go back to um, as, as COVID starts to unwind. Um, and, and, you know, let me talk about this you know, as an example. You know, in, in advertising, you know, a great deal of, of television advertising is sold at the upfronts um, in, in New York each, each spring. And 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 it's where big advertisers will go and and bet on the content slate um, of 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 the broadcasters and 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 spend, spend significant chunks of their marketing budget for the year. Now, in a world where you know we have connected television, a huge amount of data um, about uh, about the audience that content has been broadcast to, you know, particularly through connected television platforms like Roku. You know, does does a ceremony like like that persist, or do does the, the much more effective data driven advertising products of the of the digital age now start to make significant inroads into into that market? And so, I think it's it, that's that's a really helpful framework to us in trying to think about um, what the what the post COVID world looks like. So let's stick with that theme of uh, data analytics and and how much more information both clients and uh, investors get you know we mentioned earlier you graduated from Edinburgh with a degree in computer science uh, with mathematics how much quant do you use in your investing process or or ask differently 
how important are all the metrics that are available today to be crunched versus 20 years ago to your process? I'll answer that in, in two ways, if I may. I think the first is that our process is very qualitative. Um, what what we're trying to think about are what are the big drivers? You know, where could the revenues of this company be five or ten years from now? Um, you know, what 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 are the competitive advantages? You know, which is is, is really getting into questions about about profitability and margins. Um, but but what is the corporate culture? What is it about make, that makes this business um, special? You know, why can't somebody else do it? And we think if we can answer some of those more qualitative questions, I think it gets you it gets you to to, to broadly correct answers. You know, the left of the decimal point, if you will. And and I see much more value in that for us than than this you know what we see in in markets, which is this this constant um, attempt to predict what a company will earn this quarter or next quarter more accurately than everybody else. Um, which is a game we think, firstly, that we have no advantage in. And it's you know, so important for an investor to be able to articulate what they think their own advantage is. We spend so much time asking it of, of companies, but so little time asking it of ourselves. But we, we have no advantage in that, that more pre- precise estimation of, it, of short-term earnings than anybody else. Um, but what we do have, you know, being in Edinburgh, having a bit of, of distance and perspective on, on what's happening in financial markets is maybe that ability to be patient in, the, in this most impatient of industries. And we think that's more likely to, to add value um, for our clients over time. Um, another take on it would be um, that if I, you know, as uh, observing what's been happening in our companies over, over the past five years, maybe a little longer, is, is just seeing the impact of machine learning and artificial intelligence and what this, these technologies are capable of. And it's that ability to ingest huge amounts of quantitative data and spot patterns in a, in a way that a, a human just isn't capable of. Um, and so you know, we've, we've, we've been having an experiment uh, within Bailey Gifford looking at, you know, can, could we apply these same technologies to recreate the human investors that we have? Um, and so, so our um, um, systematic investment strategy, which we, we, st- we started incubating in the past couple of months, um, were after, after, after three years of, of um, investment in the team and the technology and the algorithms, is, is our own experiment to try and disrupt ourselves in going about the task of investment. Huh, quite interesting. I have to ask you a question about a little bit about some of your background relative to being a U.S. and a global investor. You, you worked on the developed Asia team at Bailey Gifford, and you also worked on the U.K. equity teams. What was the takeaway from that experience when you're either looking at U.S. investing or global investing, and and how different um, is investing in those areas versus Let's say the U.S. Well, I think for most of of my career, um, the the emergence of China as a global economic superpower has has been an absolutely central phenomenon in the world of investing, and you know, not only its its economic rise, but the emergence of 
companies on on the east coast of China with with the innovative capacity and entrepreneurship to match some of those that you you have on the west coast of the U.S. Um, and so I suppose um, the one of the things I, I take take away from from my experiences is is just an appreciation of that phenomenon. Um, you know, helped by some of my Chinese colleagues, helped by the fact that um, um, we've now opened a, an, an investment office in Shanghai, um, where you know, one, of, one of my partners has, has moved out from from Edinburgh, um, but some of some of my Chinese colleagues have moved back to China as, as part of that effort, and and a, a really important um, part of understanding what's going on in the world is is understanding some of those developments. Um, I think in looking at the U.S. with an international perspective um, can can yield insights that that others aren't looking for. Um, so, you know, I, I, mean, I I link it to to Netflix um, because I think there's 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 a few a few few points in there that are really relevant to our process. Um, what what we're trying to do is is look for big winners on the sort of time horizon that we have. So. So ten years, um, you you see a, this this um, um, power law distribution in stock market returns. You see a very small number of big winners, and so you know, what we're trying to do is is identify companies with that sort of potential, and then where we find them, aim to be very patient and long term owners, accepting that at times we'll look very um, out of favour with the market, um, and one consequence of that approach is that actually. The, the biggest mistakes that you make are um, not stocks that you own which go down, which are inevitable. You know, I, I make lots of mistakes, um, but it's it's the ones that you 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 look at, you do the analysis on, and you don't buy um, that then turn out to be big winners. And I put Netflix into that category for us. Um, you know, we were looking at it back in I think it was 2012. Um, around about the time they split, they they they, they announced their plan to split the streaming and the the, the DVD business, um, and which which was taken very badly by both their, their customers and the stock markets. And you know, we, we we didn't we didn't take the plunge and buy the stock at that point, which is which I see as as, as one of my biggest mistakes over the past ten years. Um, huh. But then, so look, looking at the stock, maybe three years later. Um, and it, it was up a lot at that point, and and of course it's it's very difficult to 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 buy a stock that's that's gone up several folds since you last looked at it. Um, but I, but what stands out for me and what allowed us to to make that purchase despite the, the stock price having increased um, was looking at the progress of the international business. Um, you know the, the the U.S. investor base in in Netflix at that time was almost singularly focused on the U.S. subscriber additions in any single quarter. Right. And because the international business wasn't, wasn't making much money at that time. And I think our insight was that you know, it had seemed for a long time that, that Netflix wouldn't get away with what it had managed to achieve in the U.S. in other markets because the incumbents would see what had happened and they wouldn't let, wouldn't let it happen. And our insight was that you know, they'd managed to turn on all these markets in one sweep and that the, the traction that they were getting would ultimately lead to an extremely profitable business. And so it was that, that ex-US piece when everybody else was focused on the US subscriber base that I, that I think was our insight at that point. 
so let me raise an interesting question about this. You mentioned a number of different companies, a number of different stocks. How do they fit into managing a portfolio? It's obviously uh, the analysis of a single stock or any stock is certainly very different than constructing a portfolio. How do you think about weight, portfolio weights? How do you think about different positions? You run a fairly concentrated portfolio, so there aren't a whole lot of openings for any one given company. Yeah. The the way that I think about this is um, it comes back to this this asymmetry of returns or the concentration of returns in a small number of companies. Um, so I was doing some work on this back in 2012, 2013, and the, the starting point for me was actually trying to think about um, about outcomes for individual companies. Um, you know, and how if you know if I was looking at I know Amazon and said it had 100% upside, and somebody else was looking at Alphabet and said it had 200% upside, how could we think about those different outcomes, and how would you attach probabilities to them? And the the, the the way I looked at it was was um, actually inspired by Kahneman's book, looking thinking about base rates. So, so let's look at the past 30 years of, of the S&P 500. What can you say about stock returns? And there was one rule which emerged, which was actually quite consistent through time, which was that in any five-year period, about 5% of stocks go up fivefold, at least fivefold. And and so you know, one of the things we, we we focused on is has this company got the potential to go up at least fivefold, and why is it more likely for this company than than a stock picks at random? Um, and you know, the, the implication of that for portfolios is is quite interesting because you know, what what you're saying is that if you have a buy and hold portfolio, you know, a huge proportion of the return is going to be concentrated in the top two or three successful holdings. So come back to come back to this point about what is a mistake. You know, people um, rightly focus on sell discipline and you know, what caused you to sell a stock. But actually the biggest danger for a, a long-term buy and hold investor is that you sell a stock prematurely um, and that you don't capture that outsized impact of that, that, that small number of companies. Um, now, there's a there's a, a really interesting piece of work um, done by uh, an academic at um, Arizona State University very recently, Professor Bessenbinder, and he looked at 90 years of, of U.S. stock market data. And what what that showed is of the sort of 26,000 companies that that you could have invested in over that period, um, all of the return um, came from from just 4% of the companies. But in fact, it was even more concentrated that, than that. So, so of, there was about, I think, I think his numbers were, there was about $32 trillion of excess value created by the U.S. equity market over that 90-year period. And of that, half of the excess value creation came from just 90 companies. So, so stock markets are driven by a really small number of exceptional companies. And so what we mustn't do as long-term investors is truncate the impact of, of those big winners. So, so go back to, to, you know, talking about it in, um, you know, in, in, through specific examples. You know, since, since buying Tesla in, in um, seven years ago, 
I I don't know how many times I've I've been told to sell it. You know, it's it's had seven or eight drawdowns of at least thirty percent in in that period. Um, you know, and and every time it goes up, you know, the, the people know when are you going to, when 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 are you going to sell. Um, but it's it's actually not unusual to see a big winner like Tesla if you look over that time frame. You know, that's been the case with Amazon over the past 15 years. That's been the case for us with Tencent, the Chinese gaming company, over the past 12 years. Maybe with not quite the same uh, um, attraction of headlines that, that Tesla has had. But but it, the structure of returns is clear. It's that small number of big winners. And so, you know, we, to, to directly answer your question about about the structure of the portfolio, we where we still see a path to significant upside, where we see an evolving opportunity, we're very loath to um, um, sell stocks that we think are capitalizing on the opportunity in front of them. And we allow them to become a big part of the portfolio. Quite fascinating. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. So let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. And, and since we were just talking about Netflix and Amazon, let's start with that. Tell us what you're streaming these days. What are you watching? What are you listening to? while we're all stuck sheltering at home. Yeah. Um, so I, I think like most people, um, I'm, I'm uh, enjoying the, the fourth series of The Crown on Netflix at the moment, um, ad- addressing a, a, a really interesting period in, in, uh, in the British monarchy. I've also been enjoying uh, um, Ted Lasso on, on Apple TV, um, and just a, a great... Uh, a great commentary on the power of positive thinking. I, I, I think there's, you know, I, I think we're just in a fortunate position that there's so much great content out there at the moment. I, I, I think what the, the the piece that I um, uh, that I'm really looking forward to that's been delayed by the coronavirus is Dennis Villeneuve's um, adaptation of Dune, which I think is is coming next year. But one of one of my favorite science fiction books and. Uh, we were in Jordan a couple of years ago in Wadi Rum, where, where, where the film is set. So I think that, that's going to be an absolutely um, spectacular movie. Yeah, I believe that's uh, teed up for HBO Max, if I, if I recall what I, what I heard about it most recently. And, and I loved the first book, had a hard time getting through some of the latter books, but it has defied an outstanding film version. Hopefully this is the one that will break that unlucky streak. So let's talk about um, mentors. Who who are some of the people who helped shape your career? Um, well, you, you mentioned I I started so so. Well, first first of all, I you know on like most of the the investment partners at Bailey Gifford, I've, I've spent my whole career at the firm, um, and um, you know, starting back in the UK department um, with with Ian McCombie and and Jared Callahan, Charles Plowden, who. You know, I think our, our, our UK team back at that point was just a a, a powerhouse in the UK equity market, and you know, it, it embraced the tools of of um, free cash flow yields, etc., that was so effective through through the two um, thousands. And and I, I think I learned a lot about the, the morality of investing from then. Um, I, I think I think. Um, Becoming a becoming the deputy manager and then co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, and and working with with James Anderson, who's who's been at Bailey Gifford for thirty six years, um, and just just the what what I've learned from him about um, both um, 
retaining just a, a, a absolute curiosity and focus on companies, um, a, a, a focus on process and and differentiating process, um, and 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 having ambition in in what we're trying to do, and uh, such an important mental for me. Um, as, as, as well as, in fact, Max Ward, who was the, the manager of, of Scottish Mortgage before James, and again exemplified the, the power of positive thinking and an optimism, which I think is so crucial to, to generating long-run investment returns. Quite interesting. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about uh, your favorite books. What do you like to recommend? What are you reading right now? Well, I think when it when it comes to investment, I, I believe some of the best books about investing aren't, aren't written about investment at all. It's, it's you know, getting to read about people interacting with complex systems and lots of other settings. Um, so the, the, psychology, the Psychology of Military Incompetence by Norman Dixon or Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez or, or some of Atul Gwande's books on medicine. Um, you know, I, I think they, there's, there's lots of interesting tips in there for for a, an interested investor. Um, but but there's just one crucial point to remember, which is that in, in in investment, the upside is unbounded and the downside is constrained. Whereas in I think all of these other settings, you know, the downside is catastrophic. You know, you you kill the, the patient, you 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 die in a survival situation, you lose the war. Um, so, so long as you can make that mental leap, I, I, I think that's some of the, the most interesting, um, um, in, interesting literature on, on an investment. In terms of, of what I'm currently currently reading through, um, I've just finished um, Reed Hastings' book on uh, on the culture of Netflix. Um, some fascinating observations in there. Um, I'm, I'm reading Linked at the moment. Which is about um, the the impact of complex networks and in, in so many um, fields of endeavour, but all all of those I I listen to on Audible when I'm when I'm out running. That's become my my reading time these days. Quite interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent university grad who is considering a career in either finance or growth investing? I. I worry about uh, graduates who are considering a career in in finance or, or growth investing. I I think you know, being interested in financial markets is not uh, likely to be a good indicator that that somebody's going to be a good investor. I I think a, a much better indicator is whether they're interested in in companies, whether they have that curiosity about business models. You know, what makes a company work? You know, fascinating entrepreneurs. I think all of the the piece around interacting with financial markets, those are sort of, you know, those are those are skills that you can teach somewhere. But but financial markets are not interest, intrinsically interesting in and of themselves. What's much more interesting are the, are the underlying companies. And if you can if you can make good judgments about those things, I, I think the finance piece looks after its after itself. Huh. You know, when it, I, I used to I used to um, run the run the graduate recruitment for for, for investors at Bailey Gifford and. One of the things we tried very hard to get away from was um, in business business studies or economics graduates, and tried to get much more into the liberal arts, um, where you know I, I think you could get people with with curiosity, but that, that weren't consumed with that that ambition to work in finance. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. And our final question: 
What do you know about the world of growth investing today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first getting started? I think it would be the, the extent to what, the, the, the what you do influences your views. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the wrong way around to think you can, you can sit and, and think about things and then that should influence what you do. Instead, it's, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you, you, you don't sit behind your desk and pontificate. You've got to get out into the world. There are so many interesting sources of information. You know, fund management is, is, gets most of its information from a very small number of people. You know, situ- situated mainly in London and New York, but there's a whole world out there. You know, I've, I've moved my family out to Silicon Valley on three different occasions and done extended trips. And the, you know, the, the the people that you meet, the the entrepreneurs, the investors, you know, they they um, they, they can shape the way you view the world um, in in a way that's 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 extremely helpful um, to 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 the job. Um, so so get out and do things, and meet people. Quite interesting. We have been speaking with Tom Slater. He is the head of U.S. Equity Growth Investing at Bailey Gifford. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our prior nearly 400 such discussions. You can find them at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast fix filled. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Give us a review at Apple iTunes. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put together this conversation every week. Marufal is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.